Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheet's pharma regulatory podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is November 11th, 2022. For our U.S. listeners, I'm sure many of you are like us and glad the political ads have disappeared now that Election Day has come and gone. But there is a lot there is a lot to discuss about the ramifications of the election, even though we don't quite know who will control Congress the next two years. As of this recording, we're still waiting for the final votes in close races to be counted. The party controlling both chambers in Congress is still up in the air, although it's growing increasingly likely the House will go to the Republicans who are expected to gain a narrow majority. The Senate could wind up tied with 50 seats for each party, which means the Democrats would retain control because the vice president breaks ties, although that's still up in the air. That's still, I guess, considered a toss up. So I know there's still a lot of uncertainty here, but if we assume that GOP gains control of at least one chamber, what do you all think that will mean for the FDA and for health policy in general? Well, I think it means that uh, whatever major reforms uh, Democrats are hoping to accomplish, uh, um, you know, won't uh, um, won't happen. And uh, with a divided government through kind of what the uh, impact of uh, Republican control of one or uh, uh, both chambers will be is, uh, um, you know, more investigations and uh, uh, more hassling of, uh, um, uh, you know, agency uh, decisions that uh, that the, uh, um, uh, you know, House majority, for assuming that it's uh, just a Republican House majority, um, doesn't like. Uh, you could see some uh, um, uh, hearings perhaps on, uh, um, you know, abortion uh pill telemedicine, although uh, given that uh, um, abortion was seen as kind of a uh, a factor in uh, Democrats' relatively strong performance, perhaps uh, uh, leadership would uh, shy away from that issue. It's obviously it's kind of uh, an important policy uh, um, position for them. So it uh, could uh, could come up, even if it's not sort of a political winner, it seems like, in the uh, um, for the electorate. Yeah, the the abortion pill I always thought was an interesting one. I know that there there have been questions about you know kind of FDA's approach to the REMS for that for that product. So you wonder if maybe they you know they start having the you know hearings about how the the REMS is administered and whether it's you know whether there are issues with you know adverse events and and so forth occurring because as they've relaxed some of the restrictions and so forth. But yeah, that's that'll be an interesting one to see if they how they approach that. I mean, I think um, one key thing is going to be that there's a good chance, you know, it's split government um, and in both houses of Congress, right, there's going to be very small majorities um, to to begin with. So, um, you know, the potential for legislation is going to be limited, but um, whoever is in control kind of controls what hearings and oversight action often can happen and get a lot of attention. So, um that's where people are thinking a lot about well what kinds of kind of investigations might be done so for example under republican control will we see um you know more um investigation into how cms is implementing the inflation reduction act and the drug pricing stuff will we see certain types of COVID-19 related investigations um, from Republicans. Um, So I think, you know, we may have to think more 
<laughs> about, again, that sort of oversight that Congress can do than legislation necessarily. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Sarah. I think the uh, um, you know the relevant uh, um, leadership in the in the House has already signaled a strong interest in those things with uh, letters to uh, um, FDA and uh, CMS. So uh, you know, presumably, uh, if they get the gavels, they'll have some uh, uh, data ready made to uh, um, start those uh, start those hearings on. And uh, um, you know, it's always a question of sort of kind of can they uh, um, can they actually find something very embarrassing, and uh, can they get uh, um, captivate the public's attention that's required to make the uh, the agency's uh, operations more uh, difficult and perhaps even uh, you know shift policy through uh, through dint of uh, that kind of pressure. And another thing for I guess FDA watchers is um, if Republicans control the Senate, um, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about exactly who is in line to chair the Help Committee. Potentially Rand Paul, who um, people may know is not always the biggest fan of FDA and how they approve drugs and has in the past, you know, endorsed sort of a fairly loose, I think, ideas around the regulatory authorities FDA would have that would really change the way drugs could come to market in the U.S. And and not that I, um, again, think that there are majorities in Congress to sort of change the underlying statute, but again, just sort of if he got that chairmanship position, you know, it just sort of, again, it kind of may, he may be able to use it to sort of elevate his viewpoints and things in different ways than um, even if he's not necessarily in the position of, you know, ch changing the law, it still may have impacts, you know, in terms of um, discussions and how things play out. Sorry, certainly if Senator Paul becomes chair of the health committee, we'll see more more hearings about the origins of COVID. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming he'll try and get Dr. Fauci back up there, even though he's now retired because those two have had, uh, as you want to call them, legendary. They've had some pretty, pretty interesting arguments at, at here at COVID uh, related hearings um, in recent months. Um, the the. You know, the, the other thing that's that's come up and I, I you know, I, I'm not I don't think the FDA necessarily has to worry about this or, you know, Commissioner Califf or, you know, but they've talked about wanting to impeach cabinet secretaries and, um, you know, impeach President Biden and, you know, if they get control of the House and so forth. I, I you know, all that, you know, while they, you know, I, like I said, I'm not I'm not thinking Commissioner Califf is in danger of, of having to deal with any of that stuff, but. All that takes time away from doing other things like, say, the budget, which is some, another issue that is going to be kind of um, affected by GOP control. They, you know, as most people probably know, the GOP doesn't like to, they're trying to limit government spending. So, you know, increases in non-user fee dollars are probably not going to be as uh, as frequent or Whatever you want to call them, as as we've seen, and you know, under the under democratic control. So, yeah, there, there's a there's a lot of things that could you know take up time. I think too, in addition to just direct health policy things issues that they're um, you know that could be dealt with. Well, you you, you said that uh, Caleb was not at risk of uh, being impeached, and I'm uh, I'm sure you're uh, you're right about that. But one interesting thing to watch is. What if Califf uh, uh, resigns? You know, you uh, read a story a little while ago that he intimated that uh, uh, you know next year he might uh, um, might step down as commissioner. And 
you know, how how would the Biden administration go, go about replacing him if there's a Republican controlled Senate? You know, we we saw how much of a struggle it was to find someone in a uh, in a democratically controlled Senate at the beginning of his uh, his term. And then if you have to, uh, you know, thread an even, uh, uh, you know, you know, thread an even smaller needle or needle into an even smaller space, I'm not quite uh, I guess it's a smaller needle because it's a little eye at the top of the needle that you're th- putting the thread through. So uh, sorry to uh, uh, torture that analogy uh, there, folks. But, uh, you know, if, uh, um, you know, if there is a Republican controlled Senate, I think sort of any confirmations uh, um, of, uh, um, you know, executive and branch officials, cabinet and, you know, uh, um, other folks uh, subject to advice and consent is going to be very tricky to uh, um, to achieve. So it could uh, uh, freeze. Uh, um, Freeze the administration's ability to uh, replace anyone who uh, who moves on. So uh, um, that's something to watch as well. Just to final note on the uh, the uh, the elections, that's uh, um, kind of interesting. This we're kind of it's basically in line with the polls, but also um, shocking in a way. This is the uh, the results that uh, um, that happened on Tuesday, and I also think that sort of people's impression of you know what. Um, will happen and through kind of, in fact, you know, has happened is colored by the slow rollout of the results. I mean, we saw in uh, 2020 how the, you know, the delay between election night and, uh, you know, final uh, results in many states uh, led to a lot of mischief making about the uh, validity of the election. And here, I think, you know, had on Tuesday night, Republicans definitively taken the House and not taken the Senate or even taken uh, um, taken both, it would have colored people's impressions in a uh, much different way. It's almost like uh, you know losing the house over the course of this week, you know, is considered a victory for uh, for Democrats in a way that's sort of kind of had they lost on Tuesday night, it would have just been a loss. Um, which is very interesting to me, how sort of how uh, human psychology, uh, you know, sort of kind of a delayed bad outcome is is uh, is much better than a uh, than just a an immediate bad outcome, even if the outcome is the same. <laughs> I guess it yeah. takes a little bit of the wind out of the victory or defeat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a you know it, it. I mean, it's also I mean the numbers are are there too. I mean, just showing that they, I mean you know, they you know we we heard red wave, red wave, you know for weeks and weeks, even up to you know the last few days. I mean there were there were concerns that. The current help committee chair, Senator Patty Murray, was could not get reelected and she won in a walk. But I mean, it was, you know, I mean, that, you know, they were worried the New York, the New York, uh, the Democratic New York governor wouldn't get reelected and she won relatively easily. So, I mean, it, there were a lot of there were a lot of scared people out there, at least on the Democratic side, that the Republican wave was really going to really change a lot of things. And and um the fact that that didn't happen, I think, is, you know, is, is really causing a lot of people to think, you know, to think hard about, you know, kind of where where this country is at at this point. Oh, absolutely. The uh, um, you know, I will say that it looked like uh, if New York didn't didn't experience a red wave, it was certainly a red splash. Things were a lot closer in a uh, mm-hmm. what's considered a pretty blue state than uh, um, than one would usually expect. Um, and you're right. That's really kind of that, uh, you know, even if they uh, Republicans. Uh, you know, take the majority in uh, one or both chambers. They'll obviously sort of, I think, be a bit chastened in terms of sort of kind of what their, uh, um, you know, uh, policy approach will be, since sort of kind of what they uh, what they thought was going to be a mandate is perhaps a uh, significantly less of one. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, all this talk about kind of what what's going to happen, you know, kind of, uh, you know, leads us into our next story, which is, you know, looking at the the Inflation Reduction Act and the price negotiation um, policy that's in there. One of the one of the ideas that's already been thrown out there is to, you know, by some Republicans is to make change, you know, would make changes to that already. They haven't even started doing it yet. Um, and now sponsors are starting to kind of analyze um, the law and kind of how it's going to impact their development programs. And one company has already said they're making changes now because of it. Um, Alnylam, which is a rare disease focused company, announced that it was stopping plans to initiate a phase three study of a second generation RNAi product called Mvutra. Um, for a second indication because they didn't want to be subject to price negotiations. Um, the company was planning to look at the product in Stargardt disease, which is a genetic eye disorder, but said the second indication would make it subject to negotiations. And they said that was a disincentive to pursuing, um, you know, to pursuing, pursuing that. So, um, you know, that was a little surprising this week. Um, Eli Lilly also announced that it was ending development of a product being studied in blood cancers because um, after the Inflation Reduction Act was factored in, the program's future investment was no no longer met its threshold. Um, you know, critics, of course, of the IRA jumped immediately on this, saying that this is proof that price negotiations limit innovation and this should be scrapped. And, you know, there's also, you know, some, you know, people are trying to figure out what the companies were, why the companies were making these decisions. If it was, you know, solely a price negotiation issue, if there's something else going on. I'm curious what you all think of this. I, I, don't, I don't know if we're going to see, do you think we're going to see like a, you know, a now like a litany of these kind of, you know, we're, you know, saying like, yeah, we, we stopped this program, that program, you know, it's just going to come become kind of commonplace because they're worried about price negotiations. Or do you think these are kind of like a one-off? You know, I think it's a, certainly a convenient uh, thing to say when you have a uh, a pipeline, uh, um, you know, uh, reshuffling and uh, an adjustment that sort of kind of gets uh, um, people's dander up and it sort of kind of puts the uh, um, the onus outside of uh, um, the, uh, um, the the company's decision making and, uh, um, and development strategies. So uh, um, there's, there's that factor, but you know, they both uh, you know seem legitimate to me. They uh, um, they are based on, uh, you know, actual elements of the uh, um, of the bill. You know, obviously, in the uh, um, the case of uh, the orphan drugs, if you're you have an orphan uh, product that has more than one orphan indication, it is subject to negotiations. Whereas if if Alnilam keeps uh, um, keeps just one orphan claim on it, they will not be subject to the price uh, negotiation, price setting, whatever your uh, um, euphemism is that you uh, um, you prefer there. Um, you know, in Lily's case, it's that uh, differential between uh, um, small molecules and uh, uh, biologics. You know, industry was very eager to have a uh, difference between uh, small molecules and biologics when it came to uh, um, uh, exclusivity uh, um, as they were developing the biosimilar pathway. But now, uh, you know, all of a sudden, like, hey, hey, what's what's this about uh, being different? The uh, differences between uh, small molecules and uh, um, and biologics. So. Uh, uh, there's a little irony there, um, but I also think that both of these are areas where you could perhaps see some changes to the IRA. I mean, you're not going to get rid of the idea that um, uh, Medicare is negotiating prices with uh, sponsors. Certainly not, uh, um, uh, you know, with a uh, um, 
uh, Congress and uh, President the way we're going to uh, um, have for the next few years. And, um, you know, uh, just like Obamacare probably, uh, um, uh, you know, once it starts uh, setting in, it's going to be uh, um, pretty set. But also like Obamacare, you, you've seen a lot of changes on the margins uh, there. I mean, they, uh, um, you know, chipped away at and then eventually uh, essentially eliminated the um, the coverage mandate. They've gotten rid of the uh, um, the device uh, tax uh, um, to a, uh, um, I think, a permanent degree. That's a little out of my uh, bailiwick, but I believe it's now. Yeah, not the uh, yeah. <laughs> the can kicked down the road. To, um, they just they just sort of squashed the can entirely. Um, and um, you could see that at, at, at some point through kind of a, a change the law that said, like, you know, if you only have orphan indications, you're exempt. And so, uh, you know, now I could move forward with that uh, um, product again. You could see, uh, you know, some change to the um, the the number of years that uh, um, small molecules have before negotiations kick in. You know, uh, our colleague Kathy Kelly did a story a couple months ago about some proposal for a, uh, you know, a budget neutral fix on uh, on that question that would sort of, you know, set both biologics and uh, um, small molecules at uh, um, 13 and sort of kind of adjust other uh, rebates to uh, to, you know, result in the same savings for uh, um, uh, for the government. That's obviously still sort of kind of pulling money out of the uh, the pharmaceutical system, but it sort of does uh, um, doesn't sort of create this uh, um, this difference in terms of sort of kind of uh, platform uh, um, favorability that's uh, that's exists now. So uh, you know, obviously, as it stands now, those seem like uh, you know reasonable decisions if uh, um, uh, you know that's the deciding factor. But uh, there's also are sort of kind of two of the uh, areas where we can actually see some uh, some some reforms in IRA. Yeah, and I think you captured a lot of the the key the things I was thinking about, Matt, I mean, going back to, you know, what we were hearing companies saying in terms of their investment decisions or how they're restructuring their companies, you know, when when I read their arguments and I see some of the analysts who agree with it and the investors and so forth, it sort of seems logical. And then when you see the people that are very pro the Inflation Reduction Act and they make arguments saying, you know, these companies are over-exaggerating the impact of the law on their decision or if what they're saying is true about their drug, then, you know, their drug would still make them a lot of money and it's hard to really, you know, if they're going to be targeted by the law in this way and it's hard to quite understand why they'd be, you know, discontinuing it at this point. Um, So it's really hard to know, especially because, as you said, it's sort of a, um, it's kind of hard to officially prove them wrong (laughs) so it does give them some a little bit of leeway to have this as an excuse and obviously they have a political incentive right to to have this narrative out there um so it's very complicated again it's comp and it's complicated because we have a law that is still underway we don't even know exactly you know there's still rulemaking and other parameters (laughs) around this process that has to be implemented we haven't even seen the sorts of price levels cms is going to be able to negotiate for um so you know, I, I think it's something to watch because I think as we know from the, the the debate over the years to even get a law like this in place, narratives that are sort of hypothetical and kind of hard to totally prove true or false in one way end up having a lot of resonance in the public um, sort of mindset and politicians mindset in terms of, you know, Farm always talking about how, you know, drug price controls will impact innovation and lead to people losing access to life-saving therapies. We know that narrative 
has a lot of sway, even though, again, there are people that, you know, try and deconstruct it and push back on it um, in cert to certain degrees of it. And I, I definitely um, think you raised a lot of good points on the um, possibility for um, reform or, you know, overhaul of the IRA. It just seems, particularly given the likely dynamics of the government, you know, I don't think Republicans are going to repeal the law. Um, they're not going to have enough power or control to do it, but it, I think it is, like, could they get anything done around the margins, um, particularly in places where there might be, um, you know, they just need a few Democrats who are sympathetic to the cause to get on board is probably, you know, where to watch for. Of course, I think like in some ways reforming this is going to be a little bit harder than Obamacare. Um, because yeah, Obamacare the <laughs> started off unpopular, whereas this is sort of, uh, you know, uh, pulling pretty well. So. Uh. Right. And I mean, some of the parts of it, like I, I think part, some of the Part D reform was always bipartisan. So the fact that some of the politicians out there now want to like t repeal everything <laughs> seems a bit extreme as well. Um, again, some of the political dynamics of repealing this will be a bit harder um, for Republicans. And um, I also you just sort of have to wonder after how many years they tried to repeal Obamacare and <laughs> failed spectacularly, you know, again, like, do you want to sort of start a fight like this if you're not sure you can win? Because that doesn't, to me, look too great. But, you know, I, I definitely could see where there could be bipartisan support around certain things, like if companies can make the case around things like the orphan drug status or you know, tweaks around the edges, they they certainly can get, particularly as implementation goes forward, if CMS does anything, Congress wants to override or so forth. I, I, I keep coming back to when we're talking about, you know, not developing drugs because you're going to negotiate the price in a certain number of years. If you have a blockbuster, you know, I mean, Kathy wrote about how, um, the cancer drug Ibruvica is going to be one of the first ones to be negotiated in that first group of negotiated drugs. If you have a if you have a blockbuster and you know that's going to make billions of dollars, are you really not going to do it because are you are you going to turn it down because in nine years or thirteen years you could have to negotiate the price with the government? Are you going to turn are you are you going to leave all that money on the table that you could make in those year you know in that period before you negotiate the price? I, I I guess I'm, you know, I'm still kind of struggling with the thinking of whether, you know, major innovative, like truly innovative and potentially game changing types of products are going to be stopped or delayed or whatever because because of this. I, I think I, I think it might be more realistic to think that, you know, products that are kind of on the, you know, like you're talking about on the margins, you know. Maybe we don't, you know, we would normally invest in them if we think we can maybe get it over the finish line and, you know, we see some activity there, but we aren't sure yet. Maybe, you know, those sorts of things kind of may get stopped in a situation like this going forward. But I'm I'm still kind of, you know, trying to, you know, tackle what the if there's going to be like a fundamental you know, change or drop in, you know, innovate, innovation, you know, in the kind of the grand scheme of things. Well, the, the argument is, I guess, twofold. One, you never know it's going to be a blockbuster until you uh, launch and uh, and grow it. I mean, if you look at, uh, say, theoretically, uh, you're a company that's uh, poised to launch uh, 
you know, the the first uh, Alzheimer's drug in uh, in decades. And, uh, you know, that, of course, is going to be a uh, a blockbuster unless it uh, blows up in your uh, your face, as we saw a uh, um, uh, a year ago uh, with uh, um, with Agilehelm, you know, that uh, um, did not go according to sort of the uh, the best case scenario that the uh, the you know the um, the planners that the the company uh, the company had. So uh, you know, it's uh, um, it's always a roll of the dice, and I think the uh, the idea that the IRA uh, you know wades it towards the uh, the the low numbers uh, um you know sort of kind of uh, you know changing the calculus for folks and then the um in 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 general the idea is that sort of because of that uh, lower potential for uh, you know uh, uh, blockbuster sales that uh, investment dollars will not flow to the pharmaceutical industry in the same way they have been it's because there's going to be you know less speculative development of uh, biotech just based on a cool idea because it you know it may not be uh, you know, the chance of it being a billion dollar idea or sort of kind of, uh, you know, uh, um, a smaller percentage, uh, um, you know, uh, there's a smaller percentage of that uh, now. So uh, um, that's, uh, um, you know, there's sort of kind of, there's the, um, there's the, the, the development mechanics and just sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, serendipity that sort of kind of turns, uh, you know, a good, uh, um, a good drug into a blockbuster. And then, 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 then there's the, the financial mechanics that's sort of kind of, uh, you know, may not even result in as many good drugs that uh, um, that sort of start down the development path because uh, investors feel they they have a better uh, chance of high return elsewhere. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess you know, you know, we're everyone's going to have kind of their own their own thoughts on this. But yeah, I guess we're going to have to wait and see. You know, industry will adapt just like they've adapt they adapted to Obamacare. They you know they adapted to you know, the 21st Century Cures Act and, and, and FDA regulations, you know, that come out, all, you know, all the time. So I guess we'll have to see how they adapt to this one. And if, you know, if, if it, if they push for changes and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be following those. It'll be, uh, you know, this will be another one that's, uh, you know, that's fun to watch in the coming months. Yeah. I also, I mean, one thing I don't know that really we mentioned, but like, you know, other parts of the the world have drug price negotiations with industry. Other governments do this, and you know it's not. We we definitely have seen cases, obviously, where it's taken longer for certain drugs to reach some European countries, perhaps than the U.S. But they usually don't. You know, <laughs> um, in many cases, you know, they those drugs end up being available. Certainly, you know people in Europe have access to many of the same pharmaceuticals we have. So again, I think that's another thing to think about is like, look at how companies adapted to those systems as well and what that means for the U.S. Yeah, I'll be curious to see, you know, kind of how that how that how that all shakes out, I'm sure. Finally, we're going to switch gears a little bit and look at expanded access policy. The FDA updated guidance that clarified uh, sponsors do not risk potential enforcement actions if they put their expanded access policies on their websites. Companies had largely accepted that this had been the case already, but there was there were questions about whether making the policies public could be considered promotion of an unapproved drug. The agency let the pos- left the possibility, however, that it will be watching, saying that policies are not promotional unless the policy is posted in a promotional context. I want you all to define that for me when we're done. <laughs> This is just the latest of several efforts to streamline the expanded access program at the FDA in part to make in part to make them easier for patients to navigate. 
guidance also discusses instances when the agency may deny requests and discusses how expanded access can interfere with clinical trials. And to top it off, the agency said that it may not be able to give its full reasoning for making the, all these decisions about whether or not to grant ex expanded access because the data in question likely is confidential commercial information. So for you all, the last time this guidance was updated was during the right to try debate, and we don't need to get into all of that. But we've seen some rather small numbers in terms of how many people are taking are trying to use that pathway. Do you think now that we've kind of gone away from that push to grow access to unapproved drugs and so forth, and now we're kind of back, you know, the pendulum is kind of swinging back to a little more regulation of that space? I mean, I, I guess I'm not necessarily sure the pendulum is swinging back um, in terms of like that there isn't maybe, I guess, like patient desire out there, right, for more access. I think it's just that the right to try law didn't really set up a, a, a way to get them more access. And so people are still sort of left with the status quo and FDA is, you know, obviously helping kind of lay out a bit more guidance on how they, they deal with the status quo. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure that there's any evidence the, that like any pent up demand for access to experimental medicines, you know, outside of trials doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the fundamental challenge of the uh, um, expanded access uh, um, is that uh, companies are in the business of uh, selling drugs. And, uh, you know, while, uh, you know, there are some uh, mechanisms for, for charging, this is not an efficient way to generate revenue off of a, uh, you know, pharmaceutical product that you've developed. And, you know, until, you know, that becomes more appealing, you're not going to see a large mechanism you know you know the a, a larger uh um, adoption of sort of kind of this uh, um this approach by companies especially if they can't you know actually promote it i mean they're not you know even if they even if they did want to charge um you know and, and companies often don't because it sort of kind of reveals manufacturing costs and uh, um and what have you but uh you know they if they can't actually attract customers it's not it's not going to benefit them and so uh um as much as uh, um Patients might want it, and these mechanisms exist for, uh, you know, very uh, industrious patients that can sort of kind of track this stuff down. It's not going to become widely adopted because it's just not a, uh, um, there's not a sort of a, a business model that makes sense for it to uh, um, to support businesses. Um, you know, you, 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 this greater emphasis on uh, um, safety that was in the new guidance obviously, uh, um, you know, makes sense. Uh, um, uh, you know, if you think about sort of kind of uh, um, the agencies were kind of now kind of reining back on the uh, um, enthusiasm, but I think sort of fundamentally as uh, um, as long as it's not something that, uh, um, you know, companies can, uh, um, if, if, you know, efficiently uh, um, market and sell, it's not going to be a, a large part of the, uh, the, the pharmaceutical uh, infrastructure. Yeah, there was some interesting um, insight from um, our colleague Mike McCann on on this, where he was talking about a little just talking a little bit about how FDA talked in the guidance about how um, expanded access can interfere with clinical trials. And if you know the goal is to get to of these sponsors is to get to approval and marketing, if you're going to be interfering with your clinical trials and making them tougher to do, you're not going to be interested in having this huge and expansive expanded access program because, like you said, Matt, you're 
limiting your ability to or delaying your ability to get where you want to go, which is, you know, approval and, and on the market and and selling it at the price that you're setting and and so forth. So, you know, it, it's an interesting question. I, I don't, you know, like I, said, I don't know if there's an answer yet. I like I agree with Sarah. There's there's probably still a lot of pin up demand for for, um, you know, for uh, for some of these unapproved drugs just because of the time it takes to get them developed and approved and so forth. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe we'll get an answer, but um, you know that this guidance maybe maybe provides a little more clarity for um, for everybody. I mean, I think like even in covering some of the um, some recent advisory committees, like um, the ALS treatment that was recently approved, you know, I I got some um, interesting like sort of you know engagement from patients who are talking sort of about how. Um, you know, the frustration over, well, you know, having to qualify for clinical trials and limited expanded access um, because in, you know, sometimes it's just like logistically people do not live where trials are conducted. Um, the other thing often like in a disease like ALS, um, they want people in their studies who are kind of very early on in diagnosis or maybe haven't tried other therapies and that can be a barrier. So I, I, I think um, the thing that people who are less um, in favor of expanded access um, would argue is that the best thing to do then is to figure out how to better improve our clinical trial system, right? And whether that means, again, making trials more accessible to people who live all over the US, you know, whether that means thinking about, you know, interesting sort of statistical approaches or, you know, trial design approaches where you can enroll, you know, both, you know, maybe the population ideally the sponsor would like to study, right, which is maybe very newly diagnosed patients, but figure out how you could offer patients um, maybe at a different course of their disease, the experimental drug through more of the controlled clinical trial process where we could learn from it. So, I mean, I think like in sort of the ideal world, you know, the kind of compromises to get more patients access to experimental therapy without kind of compromising on getting the evidence we need to actually know if a drug works or is safe and meets that balance that you need for FDA approval and to get it, you know, have it be available widespread and for future generations. Like that's probably, I think, where FDA and companies would like to be, you know, operating more in is a world where we figure out how to improve the clinical trial system and make that system more accessible because, you know, that's always going to be, as Matt said, really the primary focus and the way in which, um, you know, the most people will be helped over the long term with the best knowledge. Yeah, that's a very uh, a hopeful thought, uh, Sarah, that this is an impetus for uh you know, uh, designing, uh, um, you know, uh, more inclusive and uh, faster uh, clinical trials, and that would be uh, benefit everybody. Yeah, I agree. It's a, you know, no one's going to complain about, you know, streamlining the clinical clinical trial system if they can figure out how to do it. So, well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.